Okay, good morning. This week we have the privilege of beginning the second book of the Torah, the book of Shmos. As we mentioned last week, we transition from a family into the beginning of a nation. And what's remarkable to me, as I was looking through the parsha this morning, is just how rapidly, just how quickly it happens. Just last week we were reading about these brothers, personalities, names, faces, the entire Jewish people number, but a few. It's a family learning how to function functionally as a, uh, as a family. Right? One of our uh, recent guest speakers said the definition of a dysfunctional family is a family with more than one person. So that was, that was last week, the dysfunctional family learning to be functional while we bless our children to be like Ephraim and Manasseh, the first generation of brothers who got along, didn't only get along, the older brother... Menashe was willing to defer to the younger brother a tremendous act of, of uh, selflessness in order to recognize the destiny of the Jewish people. And that's the ultimate bracha we can give our children, is that they get along, is that they're functional, that they're not rivals, that they're proud of one another, and that they're willing to recognize the strengths of one another and not to stand on ceremony or on principle of age, order, and demanding honor, but they're willing to see the greatness in one another. As Menashe saw the greatness in Ephraim, is there a greater bracha that our children should get along and see the greatness in one another? So we go from last week where there is a family learning to function into this week when we turn into a nation. So we'll do our overview of the Parsha. That's the point. The book ends by showing the lesson is learned. Yaakov Avinu seemingly uh, performs the exact same mistake. He prefers one over the other. He spoils one over the other. He shows favor to one over the other. But the point is that maybe, yes, was Yaakov at fault? Yaakov certainly contributed to the animosity between the brothers and Yosef. But Yaakov was not at fault in recognizing the greatness and trying to promote and actualize the greatness of, of one. He needed to do it in a less confrontational way. So even though by the end Yaakov switches his hands and shows that Ephraim has a greater potential, this generation are prepared to accept it. Unlike Yosef and his brothers who struggled with it, Ephraim and Menashe were prepared to accept it. But all of that's last week. Now we're on Sefer Shmos, Parsha Shmos. So uh, we'll give our uh, quick overview as always and then try to get into the Pesukim. So the, the Parsha begins by trying to create some transition between the books. Ela Shmos, this entire book is called Names. We see the significance of names. Names are prophetic. When a parent gives a name, it's not only a means of identifying a child, some arbitrary word, but there's some, some prophecy. The Talmud says that parents are endowed with a level of prophecy because a name is actually a description. If we want to know more about ourselves and who we can become, we should try to understand our Hebrew names, the etymology of the word of the name. So these are the names of those who came to Mitzrayim, Yaakov and his family, and the Torah, even though it just reviewed it at the end of last week's parsha, reminds us of all of the tribes and all of the brothers. Yerach, Yaakov, Shivim, Nafash. These were the descendants of Yaakov. Seventy souls. Yosef, Mitzrayim, Yosef was already there. Vayamas Yosef, Yosef, the brothers, that generation are all gone. Jewish people promulgate, they, they proliferate, they fill up the land, and the, uh, the, the explosive population growth of the Jewish people. And then we have the infamous words, Vayakam Melech Hadash Al Mitzrayim Asher Lo Yoda Es Yosef. And now our, tr- our story changes from a love for Yosef, 
who is the minister of the economy, saves the economy of Egypt, of the treasury, and uh, saves, in fact, the world by providing resources to the world. It all changes. A new king arises who doesn't know Yosef. Rashi famously quotes two traditions. It was the same person, but he forgot what Yosef did. It was a new king who... who uh, who was not uh, in tune with Yosef's contributions, the Svarno, I mentioned this Sunday night, we had a social action committee event, the Svarno says something different. How could anyone forget? Can you, Im- I don't want to make any editorial comment, but imagine there was someone who saved our economy. Would, would we not all remember him in perpetuity? Generations to come, would his face not adorn the hallways of schools? Would his, would his name not be mentioned in, in textbooks of history? Would we not all recognize that an economy in shambles on the verge of collapse Someone came along and through his, his acumen, his wisdom, his, uh, his vision, saved the economy. Would we not all remember? Says the Svarna, how could Paro forget Yosef? He says something incredible. He says, Paro didn't forget Yosef. Of course he knew Yosef. But the Jewish people became a people of history. Paro began to see Yosef as a figure of history of the past. He was in the past. Jewish people failed to remain part of the current conversation. They weren't part of the palace. They weren't lobbying and advocating. Their voice wasn't heard. They weren't at the table as part of the conversation. And so therefore this new paro forgot Yosef. He was part of history. That his descendants continue to have a voice, that's what he totally forgot. It's a reminder to us of the importance and the gift that we have in our time of the ability to advocate and lobby and to have a voice, particularly when it comes to Israel, and the importance of of using it. So this new Paro, of course, we all know the story. Paro has a plot. Paro has threatened the explosive population growth. This is the demographic problem. The demographic problem of Egypt. That Paro fears the Jewish people are going to grow in numbers and they're going to take over. And therefore, what does he do? He appoints uh, officers, Laman Anoso sum, in order to inflict them with burdens. In other words, if you oppress a people, if you keep them hopeless, if you take away their their sense of meaning and purpose. If you persecute them, then you take away the risk of their rebelling against you. Many dictators in contemporary times is exactly what they do. They deprive the masses of basic dignity and thereby deprive the masses of their own confidence to believe that they are entitled to or could have a brighter future. You break the back of your people so that they will never rise and rebel against you. And that was Paro's strategy. To break the back of the Jewish people and to a great degree he was successful. Next week's Parsha, we've studied this in the past, when Moshe comes and brings a message of hope, of change, of transformation, of redemption, do the people embrace his message? Say, well, get out of here, what are you talking about? They don't accept it. And we've studied in the past, the Avodah Kasha from backbreaking labor, when you are indigent and poor and persecuted and you've given up hope, you're not even open or receptive to a message that you can have a brighter future. And that's what the commentators explain. Kotze Ruach, shortness of breath, also can be described as Ruach of vision, of spirit. And Kotzer Katsara means narrow. They had no vision. All they saw was narrowly before them. And Paro successfully broke their back until it took a transformational leader like Moshe to not only bring a message of redemption, but to convince them that they could be redeemed. To convince them that things could yet change. That there could be a brighter future. People who are caught up in all kinds of bad habits in life, 
suffering from all kinds of addiction in life, part of the biggest challenge of those who try to intercede or run an intervention is to convince them to believe that they could have a brighter future. It is me to live without alcohol or drugs or obesity or unemployment or dysfunction. It can be me. So Moshe had to convince the Jewish people because Paro successfully broke their backs. Laman anoso besivlosam. And the Kotzer Ruach was the result. When you're caught up in the rat race and you have no time to breathe and you're just trying to get by and survive, who can plan a rebellion? <laughs> who can coordinate a revolution? Who can change their own circumstance and destiny? So if you keep someone busy and you keep them broken, they're going to, they're going to uh, concede. And that's what Paro wished and that's what he accomplished. And he broke them. He made them embittered. He made their life miserable through the hard work. And of course he recruited the young women, Shifra and Pua, to, um, as we know, to uh, these midwives in order to execute his plan. And he told them to kill all of the male children because Paro had a premonition. His astrologers told him that the savior of the Jewish people would be a boy and he wanted to prevent that birth to uh, make sure that it would never happen. But nevertheless, they coordinated secretively, they neglected his command, and of course they, um, they helped children be born. By Aslehem Batim, God rewarded them for their defiance. It takes tremendous courage. The king himself calls you in. in the Holocaust, the Nazis, this is the precursor of the, the, the suffering, the killing of babies, drowning them in their own blood, Rashi tells us later. The graphic depiction of the suffering is a precursor of, of the Holocaust, of anti-Semitism and antecedent. And, uh, and these women had unbelievable courage. And the courage was, was twofold. First of all, it was the physical courage to defy the king, Paro, at the risk of their own lives. That was a physical courage. But there was a tremendous spiritual courage, which, of course, we've, we'll talk about later. We've talked about in the past. And that is... One might easily say, who wants to bring children into this world? This world of oppression and persecution and hopelessness. You know, it's been a nice ride. We were a family of 70 that came to Egypt. Over the last generation or two, we grew into thousands. It's been a nice ride, but it looks like there's no hope for the Jewish people. Why would I want to bring another child into the world? And in fact, who had that attitude? Amram, that was Moshe's father's attitude. That's why the next section begins, Vayelech Ishmi Beis Levi, Vayikach is Bas Levi. They're anonymous at this point. A man from Levi went and took a woman from Levi, and their names don't deserve to be mentioned because they weren't responsible for the continuity of the Jewish people or its redemption until who interceded? Miriam. Miriam. Until their daughter Miriam came and said, What are you living separately and apart? Mom, here's a mirror. Beautify yourself. Attract dad. Because we need more children. We need a future. Things are going to change. We're going to grow to be a great nation. So it's Baslevi, Baslevi, Baslevi. They're not deserving of a name at this point because it wasn't their optimism. It wasn't their courage. It was their daughter, Miriam. It was these Mialdosa Ivrios. It was these, um, what are they called? Midwives, thank you who had both the physical courage to defy Paro and the spiritual courage, which has been duplicated in our time. Do you know when the most explosive population growth in the history of the Jewish people, certainly in modern Jewish history, is? 
in the DP camps after the Holocaust. Mind-boggling. It's absolutely mind-boggling. You would have thought survivors after the Holocaust would say, who knows what our future holds, this could happen again. You know what, it's been a nice ride. It's been a nice ride while it lasted. I'm not bringing children into this world. Maybe one, someone's got to get me the newspaper. That's it. (laughs) But the biggest population explosion of Jewish people, certainly in recent times and arguably in history, was in the DP camps following the Holocaust. What a testimony to faith and optimism. The image of the Jewish people like the moon waxing and waning, going small and growing large once again. And that is the vision of, of Miriam, of these Mialdosa Ivrios. That's why women are given the gift of Rosh Chodesh. Women are... Roa Esanola, they see the future, not just the present. They anticipate that the moon may look like a sliver right now. I was driving last night. Did you see the moon last night? Ooh, magnificent, gorgeous, full moon. On Rosh Chodesh, does the moon look like that? I would have thought the moon would look like that on Rosh Chodesh. You're celebrating the moon. The moon should be full in its glory, illuminating, reflecting. No, what does the moon look like on Rosh Chodesh? It's barely discernible. It's a sliver. Why? What does Rosh Chodesh celebrate? Even when the moon is barely discernible, we know it will grow large once again. And that was the vision of these women, and they are in fact rewarded. They are rewarded in kind. So we studied, I think, last year, two years ago, why it's called Baslevi, Baslevi, and we studied many of these things that I'm telling you right now. Let's, let's pick up. So Moshe is born, and, uh, and uh, of course they're fearful that he's going to die. They put him in the, in the Nile River, he's floating in the basket. Miriam Basia, Miriam uh, Basia Basparo sees him, extends her arm. We have this miracle that her arm stretches, right? The Medrash, again, whether you take Medrash literally or figuratively. What's remarkable about the story is that, this is what I think Rabbi Friend mentions. What's remarkable about the story of Basia is that when, when the Moshe is floating in this um, receptacle and it's far away from her, why did she stretch out her arm to begin with? Yes, her arm stretched. You take that either literally or figuratively, miraculously. You know, she was like a, a superhero. Her arm stretched to be able to get him. But you know what the miracle of the story is? Is that she reached for something that was beyond her grasp. To reach for something beyond your grasp. That's the miracle of the story. If you do your part, God meets you. Those are on the daf. I think we had the two, two days ago. Habal attire, Messiah so You come to do a mitzvah, Hashem helps you. So if you want redemption, which she was responsible for, you want to save a child, if you want to accomplish the impossible, I know one way it will not be accomplished. When you say the basket's floating over there, I can't reach, there's no way. When you say there's no way we can make an impact, there's no way we can make a dent, there's no way we can make a difference, that for sure guarantees nothing will happen. The miracle is she reached when it was beyond her grasp. Right? Just, or what's the expression he used? I think it comes from a famous uh, English poet. Just because it's beyond your reach doesn't mean it's beyond your grasp. That kind of, uh, I forget exactly what the, what the uh, poetry, he mentioned it, Rabbi Friend, at the Sea Mashas. That which is beyond your reach is not necessarily beyond your grasp. So she reached for it and a miracle occurred and that's the, the message for us. What was she doing at the Nile that day? Medrash tells you she was a very special woman. We're not going to take time on this now, but it's worth your looking. She grew up in the palace of an idolater, but she rejected, like Avram Avinu, she saw, despite her environment, that this paganism, this idolatry makes no sense. Why did she go down to the Nile? Mikvah. She went to cleanse herself of the idolatry. She was one of our first converts. I don't know if you can say she legally converted to Judaism, but the Gemara mentions 
that she came under the umbrella of the Almighty through going in the Nile, through going in the mikvah. So we see the mikvah as a vehicle of change when you want to abandon a, a false belief and embrace a new one. So that's the mechanism of conversion. We know that we have a kalim mikvah. Even the utensils of a non-Jew convert to become Jewish utensils by going through the mikvah. In fact, the Shulchan Aruch mentions that a Baal Tshuva, a Mummer, somebody who had false beliefs, a Jew, someone born Jewish, but who has false beliefs and becomes a Baal Tshuva, should go to the mikvah. Not that they need a conversion. Once a person's born a Jew, they're always a Jew. But it's the transformation, the way that we express the embracing of a, of a proper belief. That's why she's at the Nile. Her father used the Nile in order to go relieve himself so that no one find out that he in fact is not a deity or near the Nile, let's hope for her sake. She used the Nile as a mikvah. She used the Nile to immerse in order to convert. And in fact, it's her statement of monotheism and her righteousness, which is why we use the name she gave Moshe. It's an incredible thing. Moshe Rabbeinu, our quintessential paradigmatic leader, who in perpetuity we quote, our davening is filled with references of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Eved Hashem, Yismach Moshe, Moshe is our quintessential leader. And Moshe had many, many names, some given by the Almighty Himself. And which name do we use in this Parsha and book of Shmos? Which name do we use of all people? This Egyptian princess. Why? She was righteous. And the Medrash elaborates at length. It's worth an hour class on who she was and the choices she made and the life she led because she was a remarkable woman in, in stretching out her arm and believing that which was beyond her reach was still within her grasp and so on and so forth. Moshe grows up. She gives him the name Moshe. She drew him forth. He was drawn forth from the water. And that's his name. Drawn from the water. It's an incredible name to walk away from, live, live life with. Drawn from the water. There's a lot of symbolism in that, all for another time. Parsha continues. These are the sukkim we're going to uh, look at in depth momentarily. Moshe goes out, identifies with his people, saves a Jew, sees people hitting, has to flee to Midian, has an episode at the well. We'll talk about what's this obsession. Here we are again back at the well. Moshe meets his, his future wife, spends a lot of time in Midian, much longer than we ever acknowledge in the narrative. But we'll see in a moment. And then we go back to the story. We kind of have two parallel scenes unfolding. If you make a movie of this, I think many movies were made of this. Prince of Egypt, I, whatever. But if you made a movie of this, you kind of have scenes you are going back and forth. Moshe's life in Midian and the Jewish people, what's unfolding in Mitzrayim. The people, Vayamas Melch Mitzrayim, the king dies, this paro dies. Yisrael The people groan and they cry out. God hears na'akasam. Here we have three verbs, three descriptions. Those who study with me on Wednesday mornings, Sha'aram Betfila of Rav Pinkis, where he quotes the Medrash Yalkut Shimoni, 13 synonyms for prayer. Know that we've studied these. What is the difference between Vayeyanchu, Vayizaku, Na'akasam, Na'aka? What is the difference between these three descriptions of prayer? They groaned, they cried out, and they moaned. We don't have gratuitous synonyms in the Hebrew language. At least in biblical Hebrew, any two words that seem to mean the same thing at least have a nuanced, subtle difference. Mean to introduce something else. And that's the thesis of Sha'ar and Betfila. He takes 13 chapters. Each of these words, and these are three of them, 
to say, what's this kind of tefillah? How is it different? Prayer is not all the same. It's not generic. There's the prayer at the bedside of a woman giving birth of joy and the prayer at the bedside of someone terminally ill. There's the prayer of desperation and the prayer of jubilation. There's the prayer of anger and, and protest and there's the prayer of gratitude. We don't just generically say pray, prayer, tefillah, davening. So all kinds of davening. depends on the day and the mood and what's going on in one's life. So that's what Sha'arim Tefillah develops. We'll get back to this in these three psukim. These psukim, what's the difference between Anacha, Shava, and Naka? What is the difference? And God hears. What does it mean, Vayizkor? God remembers. Could God forget? We'll get back to all of this. Moshe is a shepherd. He comes across the burning bush. The, uh, many have pointed out the um, significance is many people walk by the burning bush. A bush on fire but not being consumed. The difference is Moshe notices. He's living life with his eyes open. Many of us see signs regularly. God is putting out the radio signal regularly. Is our antenna up? Moshe is distinguished as a leader, not least of which because he takes notice. This is not the first time. Where else did we see Moshe just taking notice? Vayar besivlosam. He sees the ish mitzri makeh. He sees the fighting, the hitting, the conflict. Most people look away. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved. No one ever wants to get involved. Moshe lives a life of being prepared to get involved. And if that's not a quintessential character trait of leadership, I don't know what is. He notices conflict, and here he notices a bush which is burning and not being consumed. I heard from someone a couple years ago, why is this the symbol God chooses for Moshe? You know what the message is? In leadership, don't allow yourself to get burnt out. There's a fire, but it's not getting consumed. Don't burn out. There's a very high burnout rate. I don't know anything about this. There's a very high burnout rate. There's a very high burnout. Listen, $586 million. That's the lottery tonight. Mega millions. I want you to know something. If I win, when I win, I'm still staying the rabbi. No, no, no. I'm staying here. I have a lot of plans. They could just happen. Now they can happen. <laughs> what? Absolutely. We'll have this class in, in our new Starbucks on campus here. It will... Uh, Anyway, so uh, he sees the bush, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. You make sure that you never burn out. He notices he has to take his shoes off. We gave a drusha last year. Why? On Harabayas, you're not allowed to wear shoes in the base of Mikdash. In, uh, I went on Harabayas twice. You can't wear leather shoes. Even today. When you go on Harabayas, you don't wear leather shoes. Go on and walk barefoot. Again, those learning the daf, we'll get to soon. The floor was very cold, the stone floor. You know, Kippur time, it's already uh, fall. How did they... Uh, Keep the Kohen Gadol warm. Oh yeah? Okay. So in holy places, one, however one defines that, one does not wear, one does not wear uh, leather shoes. And the question is why? Beautiful descriptions. We gave three or four reasons that we don't have time for now. So uh, Moshe doubts. When, when God first solicits or recruits Moshe for his leadership, Moshe demurs. He hesitates. No way. And there's an incredible conversation. We also discussed this in the past. You can listen to all the Shurim on Yu Torah. Then he asks God for his name. God gives his name. And God promises he's going to escort him. And in fact, he does. What's the name of a parsha later? Bo. It should say Lech El Paro. What does it say? Bo El Paro. When one is on a holy mission, they should always have a sense that God hasn't sent them. God is escorting them. God is with them. Bo El Paro. Moshe, uh, Hashem reassures Moshe that I'm coming with you. Vayomar ki e'ye imach, v'zelacha oz ki anoch yishlachticha. 
I'm going with you and this is your sign. When I take you out, you're going to worship me on this on this mountain. We have uh, Moshe now comes down. He asks Paro, let my people go. And uh, Moshe doubts the people's faith. They're never going to accept me. And uh, God responds. I'm sorry, Moshe comes down to Egypt only then. He didn't ask to let my people go yet. And then we have Tzipora giving the bris. This is a story unto itself. Moshe did not give a bris to the two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. So in Eliezer, it's only uh, Tzipora who does. What, is a woman eligible to be a mall? Not to be a mall. What's going on in this story? Moshe and Aaron reunite. Aaron is the mouthpiece of Moshe. They come to Paro. Paro increases the burden on the Jewish people. The Jews complain to Moshe and Aaron, a lot of good you've done us. You came with a message of redemption, and instead of lessening our load, the result is an increased burden and increased pay. Okay, that's a very brief overview. So much more to say about everything. But I want to get into our episode. We are going to look at Shlishi, where the uh, Parsha begins Shlishi, the third Aliyah. It's Perak Beis, chapter 2. Perak Beis, Pasuk Yid Aleph, chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Page 298 in the art scroll, Stone Chumash. Says the Hela Gataira. Vayi bayamim mahem. In those days, Vayigdal Moshe, Vayitzel Achav. Moshe grew up, he matured, and he went out to his brothers. Vayar besiv losam, Vayar ish mitzri make ish ivri me'echav. And he sees their suffering, and he sees an Egyptian man who is striking a Jewish man, me'echav, from his brothers. There's a few strange things about this Pasuk. Anything bother you? Me'echav, he sees him striking a Jewish man. We just said he went out to his brothers. Isn't that superfluous? That extra word me'echav seems entirely extra. What else is extra in this Pasuk? I'll give you a hint. Look at the Pasuk earlier. The last Pasuk says and now we say so the word too seems redundant. What's going on here? What's going on here? Sarashi so tells us if you look at Pasuk This is an unusual Rashi. Why? Because he actually asked the question. Right? As we've said countless times, Rashi usually just gives the answer and the challenge is to us to identify what was his question, what bothered Rashi. Here he actually asks, You just said in the last Pasuk, that Moshe grew up. What do you tell us now? Moshe. Says Rashi, Amar Yehuda, Harishon Lekomav, Asheni Lekdula. The first describes physical maturity. He was a kid, and now he became an adult. The second, Vayigdal Moshe, is responsibility. That maturity means greater responsibility. Paro assigned him, Shemineu, he assigned him responsibility within the palace. Vayigdal Moshe. Moshe grew up, means he matured not only physically, but he matured emotionally, spiritually, and he was assigned a level of responsibility. Vayar besivlosam. So it's not a coincidence. Maturity, responsibility, means greater sensitivity to suffering. Vayar besivlosam. Says Rashi, incredible words. Nason enav velibo lios metzar alayem. It means that one can see suffering because you couldn't escape it. The homeless man on the sidewalk, you tripped over him. If you tried to avoid it, you couldn't help but notice it. 
or one could seek out suffering, look for suffering, try to find suffering in order to alleviate it. Which one was Moshe? The second. Nasan'ena Valibo. He specifically placed his eyes and heart. He looked for suffering. He identified, he sought suffering. Many people see suffering and they turn the other way. They pretend they didn't see it. Cognitive dissonance, apathy, indifference, complaint, they just pretend they didn't see it. Moshe not only didn't just see suffering and not pretend he didn't see it, he pursued suffering. Tzedek Tzedek Tirdof, he pursued injustice and suffering so that he could affect it and he could relieve it. How is he identified? I'm sorry, Vayar Ish Mitzri. He sees a Mitzri man. Who was this Ish Mitzri whom Moshe confronted? Not Stam, some Ish Mitzri, Egyptian man. He was a high ranking Egyptian officer in charge of the Jewish police, making sure that they were doing their work. And he was striking a, a Jew, Maki Ishivri. So he asked, What's with this Echav? What's with this Echav? So this clearly bothered the Svarno. Says the Svarno, Vayar b'sivloson, nasan libo liros be'enei ba'oni echav. He placed his heart to see in the pain of his brothers. Vayar ish mitzrim haki ish ivrim e'echav, umitzad ha'achva his orer la'azor. What caused Moshe to take the courageous step of intervention? Mitzad ha'achva, brotherhood. You know why you're indifferent? You know what makes it possible for us to see someone suffering and not do everything to relieve or alleviate it? The disconnect. No identification. They're not me. They're the other. I don't know them. I'm not related to them. I have nothing to do with them. There's someone else's problem. If your brother or sister, your son or your daughter, your mother father called you and said, I'm suffering. I have no money. I have no... I need... Could you possibly not feel drawn to help them? You could, but then you're a cruel, miserable, terrible human being. Any decent human being is drawn to someone with whom they have an identification, a connection. Says the Svarno, Mitzana Achva. In other words, what does that mean then if you see a fellow Jew suffering and you don't run to help? According to the Svarno, what it means is you don't identify with him or her. There's a disconnect. There's a lack of Achva, of Achtus. There's a lack of unity. If there were real unity and brotherhood, one would be incapable, incapable of not intervening. The very, the very um, lack of intervention affirms that there's no identification. It's the brotherhood, it's the connection which elicits the desire to help. So we have to all cultivate within ourselves a sense of identification with Jews everywhere and the desire to relieve their suffering everywhere and to help in every circumstance in every case we can says the Ibn Ezra he went out to his brothers says the Ibn Ezra something incredible who are the brothers he went out to his brothers What's that word? What did the Ibn Ezra say? Who are the brothers? It's not a trick question. Just look at the Ibn Ezra. Rav Avram Ibn Ezra. Ha-Mitzrim. 
Who did Moshe at that time think his brothers were? Egyptians. With whom did he identify? The Egyptians. Why says the Ibn Ezra? Ki ba'armon ha-melachai. What's an armon? A castle. A, pas- a palace or a castle. Or a castle. <laughs> he was in the palace of the king. V'ta'am me'echav. And what's the end of the Pasuk? Vayar b'siv lo'sam vayar ish mitzri. And he saw an Egyptian man ma'ke ish mi'ivri me'echav. He saw an Egyptian man striking a Jewish, a Hebrew, from his brothers. So Ibn Ezra sees in this Pasuk an incredible development, an incredible maturation. At the beginning of the Pasuk, Moshe, Moshe grows older and he says, I'm so isolated living in this palace, I'm growing up in royalty. I want to go see my Egyptian brothers. I want to go identify with the Egyptian Amcha. So he goes out to meet the Egyptian brothers. But then, he sees an Egyptian hitting a, a Jew. Now, who's, his identification, his association, his whole persona changes. In fact, homiletically, this can be suggested in the very next pasuk. He looks here and he looks there and he sees there is no man. And he strikes the Egyptian and he buries him. What does it mean? Rashi says, Before he kills this Egyptian man, in a very unusual way, we'll see in a moment, he first sees that there's no righteous person destined to come from him. He doesn't want to... Um, cut off something that's destined to happen. And then he kills him, and he, and he buries him. Homiletically, what does it mean? He looks here and he looks there and he sees ki'en ish. Simple understanding meant, before he, he, uh, before he hit this mitzri, he wanted to make sure no one was watching. That's the simple meaning. But homiletically it has been interpreted to mean He looked here and there within himself. And at that moment he had a real identity crisis. And he said, who am I? Am I the Ish Mitzri? Am I the Ish Yisrael? Who am I? Am I the Jew? Am I the Egyptian? Am I the one who grew up in the palace? Or do I identify with this oppressed people? And he saw that if he tries to be both, he's neither. He's nobody. And he saw that if he's trying to be both, then he's a nobody. That there are moments in life, there are moments of integration and synergy, and there are moments where you have to decide who you are. There's a moment of truth, that you have to determine who's the real you. And homiletically it's interpreted that he strikes the Egyptian within himself. That at that moment, Moshe decided... Again, this is not the simple meaning. I know Rabbi Yehuda would not be happy. It's a homiletic suggestion that Moshe sees that if he's... He's trying to live... And he can't. And he strikes the Egyptian within himself and he decides that he links his destiny with that of the Jewish people and he's going to stand with them in their suffering. Not two Jews. Here it's an Egyptian. It's not two Jews. This is the Egyptian and the Jew. In a moment, they'll see two Jews. No, no, this is via Ish Mitzri Make Ish Ivri. He sees a Nazi commandant striking a Jew. And though he's German, 
at that moment he says to him, do I identify stronger as a German or with the Jew who's being beaten? That's his moment of truth, despite growing up in the palace. I don't remember. No, I didn't say it. Uh, I've heard it a number of times from others. I can't take credit for it. Oh, well, see, the suggestion was just made that he continued to nurse. The insistence was that he nursed not with Ba'i in the, in the palace, but with his mother. Why? Maybe he needed to be infused. We'll, we'll get to that in one moment. Yes? Yeah, but we just said the Ibn Ezra says, Who are the brothers? Says the Ibn Ezra, Mitzrim. At that point in the Pasuk, the brothers are the Egyptians. He's. But these are pronouns. Echav, which brothers, Sivlosam, their burdens. You're right, so that's what the Ibn Ezra says. At first when he went out, the impetus for leaving the palace was not to go check on the Jews. Says the Ibn Ezra, he wanted to check on the fellow Egyptians. Once he's outside the palace, he now sees Besivlosam. By the word, that word Sivlosam is the exact same word as... How do you say patience in Hebrew? Savlanut, because to have patience means to endure suffering. The sivlosam, sivlosam means suffering. Patience requires the ability of forbearance. You have to be willing to suffer. You have to have to be willing to be patient. Savlanut requires to be sovel. People don't want to suffer, even though it requires a level of patience. Anyway, that's a whole separate drasha on savlanut. We have a lot more to talk about. I see there's a lot of hands going up, but I want to make... Unless you have a question about specifically trying to understand what, we're, what I'm saying, just hold your questions because I want to... Is it about specifically understanding something? How do you know he, he, where he's from? How do you know he was Jewish? What was his connection? Had he grown up in the oh, connect, Listen, he was, he was nursed. He had an intuition. A connection still was, was kept. He identified when he saw them. That connection was kept. Right. Correct. It was it was in his mother's milk. Let us say it was in his mother's milk. Although it, it's worth digressing here for a moment to ask this question: Why would God have it that Moshe grow up in the palace? If Moshe is going to be this leader, transformational leader, bringing redemption to the Jewish people, wouldn't he want Moshe to identify with their suffering, to go through it together with them? In fact, Moshe is alienated from them. When he first comes, part of the reason in our Parsha that they reject him and his message, they say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You've come to tell us about what's going to happen. You don't know from one day of this. You didn't lift one brick. You didn't have to lose one family. What are you talking about? He's totally alien and foreign to them. Who gets involved, by the way? Who, who validates this mission? Aaron. Aaron was with them all along. On the other hand, when they come to the palace, Aaron has no stature. Paro looks at him, you're, you're a persecuted, weak Jew. But Moshe has pedigree. So Moshe has credibility in the palace. Aaron has credibility with the people. But Moshe at first is rejected. 
So why would God have it that way? Why would God specifically have, Mo- have Moshe raised in the in the royal palace? And the Ibn Ezra says something incredible. Yes. Oh, so the redemption comes from the outside. Good, but I'll tell you. Let me tell you. Let me tell you the Ibn Ezra. And the Ibn Ezra. The question is even compounded. Because even when Moshe leaves the palace, as he's reading right now, the story that we're trying to read right now, I say trying, I mean I'm getting in my own way of trying to read it right now, the, um, Moshe runs and he flees and he goes to Midian. And in fact, let's read a little bit more. He goes out on the second day and he sees now, Bill, two Jews who are fighting. And he tells the fellow Jew, the wicked Jew, why are you hitting, why are you striking your brother? Who are you? Mind your own business. What are you? You're the boss. Who made you the judge? And then he says those words. What are you going to do, Moshe? You got to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And what does Moshe realize? Somebody put up on a blog. The secret's out. Somebody Facebooked what I did yesterday. And what does he have to do? He flees for his life. Paro hears and wants to kill Moshe, which is amazing. The prince who grew up in the palace, Paro hears this one episode, doesn't want to rehabilitate Moshe, wants to kill Moshe. Again, it's a new Paro, but still. And where does Moshe go? To Midian. And where does he go specifically? We'll talk about it in a moment. To the well. He has seven daughters, and so on and so forth. Moshe stays for a long time in Midian. How long is he in Midian? Skip ahead for a moment. Look at Pasik Chav Gimel. The next section, which tells us that the king died and the Jewish people cried out, says it happened. It happened after many days. Says the Sfarno. From when Moshe fled Egypt in his youth, at Shenolad Gershom, till his son Gershom was born in Midian, Shaya Moshe Askarov leben Shmonim Shana, was almost 80 years. Shari Eliezer Nola Bederach Balechto Beshlichos Akel Yisbarach Lemitzrayim, Vazaya ben Shmonim Shana. So, how many years passed? How many years did Moshe live in, in, in Midian? The, the Ramban goes through a long exercise here similarly. The Ramban here has a long discussion similarly goes through a long uh, exercise here by Arimahim in these long years where is this? I lost the place how old was Moshe when he, when he left? there's a machlokas it's unclear exactly um, oh So when, when is it? The Medrash says that the Medrash says that he was 20 years old when this whole episode happened, and he had Gershom and Midian at 80, which tells us how long did he spend in Midian? At least six. Oh, good, we're all good at math. At least 60 years. At least 60 years. So when you read the storyline, you get the impression he went there, met his wife Tzipora at the at the well, knocked out two kids, Gershom, and came back to Egypt. 80 years. 60 years is a lifetime. 
What happened in those 60 years? Moshe and Tzipora set up a tent. They interacted with the people of Midia. What, what was going on? And remember, Moshe's father-in-law there is, is the high priest. Position of great prestige and prominence. It's all Moshe knows is the lap of luxury. He's raised in the palace of Paro and Mitzrayim. He spends 60 years with a father-in-law who is prestigious, prominent, who is the mega-preacher, the mega-church of his time, the Rick Warren of his time. It's all he knows is luxury. And only then does he come down. And so one can't help but ask, why does God create a scenario where Moshe does not at all relate or identify or experience the suffering of his brothers whom he is supposed to redeem? Wouldn't he have greater credibility? Wouldn't it make more sense? Why does divine providence ordain history to unfold that Moshe spends a minimal amount of time among his brothers? So the Ibn Ezra says an incredible answer. Says the Ibn Ezra, he takes a position, Rav Yerucham Levavitz, the Mashkiach of Mir, saw in this Ibn Ezra a position on the age-old debate about nature versus nurture. What defines a person? Are they naturally predisposed towards their personality? Or nurture? Or does the, are we nurtured towards our personality based on our environment and the influences and everything around us? Says the Ibn Ezra, of course, by the way, the answer is both, eh? Of course, both. We're born with certain predispositions, our IQ, our, our look, our intellect, our athletic ability, our artistic ability. Of course, nature has a major play, our genetics, bless you, but nurture also does. Everyone agrees it's a blend of both, which is the dominant contributor. So the Ibn Ezra says, nurture. Says the Ibn Ezra, nurture is the dominant contributor. And therefore, had Moshe Rabbeinu been raised as a slave, thinking like a slave, acting submissively like a slave, tortured like a slave, it would have been much more difficult for him to emerge as a leader of two million people and to walk into a palace making demands. Moshe is destined not only to challenge Egypt's king and its armies, but its gods, its civilization as well. Moshe is tasked not only with getting the Jews out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of the Jews. So the courage to confront all that his people knew would have been nearly impossible if it was all that he knew as well. In order to have the strength, the courage, and the audacity, and the conviction, and the confidence to challenge Egyptian culture, he needed to be raised separate and apart from a slave nation. A slave could never be so assertive to kill a Mitzri in defense of a Jew. A slave would never be so forceful to defend the daughters of Yisro, as he does, that we'll read in a moment. So the Ibn Ezra says, the Ibn Ezra says that if Moshe was to act like a prince, he needed to be raised like a prince. If Moshe was to believe that as a Jew he was royalty, he needed to experience and be exposed to what it meant to be royalty. It's an incredible Ibn Ezra. It also, where does the Ibn Ezra say it? Ibn Ezra says it earlier on. Um, Ibn Ezra says it earlier on, I think when Batya is taking Moshe back with her into the palace. And he's wondering why she's raised in the pa- why he's raised in the palace. Um, I'll find the passage for you afterwards. 
No, no, I think it's earlier. I think it's earlier. And it's on this Ibn Ezra. Uh, I'm sorry. If it weren't spread over five million pages, it would be much easier. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'll, fi- I'll find a few afterwards. Yeah, see, anyway, the Ibn Ezra says that in order for Moshe to act like a prince, he needs to experience what it means to be a prince. And that is... Um, and that is very instructive to us as parents. Because what it means is that what we teach our children they can be is what they will become. We want our children to act like royalty, not in the entitlement sense, and not like some royalty act when they're in Vegas. But if we want our children to act like royalty in the in the dignified sense, then we have to remind them all the time. You know, you're princes and princesses, you're the children of royalty. What it means to be a Jew. And that's an important message that we have to that we have to get across. So Moshe uh, is threatened by Paro flees and goes to Midian and finds himself Allah Be'er. Allah Be'er. Why does he go to the Be'er? Why specifically does he go to the well? Says Rashi, he's looking for a wife. Lashon Yeshiva. Lamad mi Yaakov shnezdavig lo zivugo Allah Be'er. He learned from Yaakov. Where did Yaakov find his spouse? Right? Lahavdil, what was the Be'er? It was the bar. It was the club. It was where the young people hung out. That's where you went, to the well. You hung out at the well, and that's where you met someone. That's where Yitzchak was introduced to Rivka through Eliezer at the well. Yaakov met Rachel in an act of chivalry at the well, and Moshe now at the well. There's a wonderful article on uh, Gush's virtual base medjish by Rabbi Samet about why the well plays such a role. We've talked about it in the past. The well is not just functionally because the well was where young people hung out. It's not just the the drinking hole. Is that what they call it? The bar. It wasn't just the well. Was the but ra- the watering hole. It was the. It was uh, much more than that. The symbolism, says uh, Rabbi Samet. The well. The idea of drawing water. Water is Torah. Well springs. Uh, live flow. Even Moshe's name in Amayim Mishisiu. But the well becomes the place. It becomes the vehicle to identify character traits. Rivka's kindness is identified only through the well. Yaakov's chivalry is identified. His physical strength, he lifts the boulder covering the opening at the well. Moshe's not physical strength, but moral strength. When he objects to the way the shepherds are treating Sipora, is displayed where? At the well. 
the well becomes the means through which to display or identify these attributes, these midos, which are critical. So the point of combining the idea of shiduchim, these marriages at a well, is not to encourage to go to the bar and the club to meet one's spouse, but the well is the way of revealing the character traits that our children are to seek in their spouses. Namely, kindness, the chesed of Rivka, the chivalry of Yaakov, the moral compass of Moshe Rabbeinu, all were actualized specifically at the well. Right, Yitzchak redug the wells and named them after his father. Right, we talked about the, the symbolism of wells then as, as well. We see, we see wells mentioned a lot. Yes? Oh, so this is the first example, right? He's, not, he's, he's looking for a woman who's not connected to his family in any which way. That's an excellent question. I don't know. I didn't see anyone talk about it. Moshe is the first to have a shidduch with a woman... Certainly his father is a great idolater, though he ultimately joins the Jewish people, Yisrael. We're not sure how permanently, but he joins the Jewish people. Um, okay, so what happens? He goes to the well. Yisrael, the high priest of Midian, had seven daughters. They come, they fill their pitchers in order to water their father's uh, flock. And the shepherds come and they dispel them. Moshe rises again. We have already three times now. First he sees an Egyptian who is killing a Jew. Then he sees two Jews fighting. That's number two. Then he sees... The uh, this is number three that he sees shepherds. Moshe is is drawn to injustice, like Rashi said. Nason ena valibo. He he has a keen eye to injustice. He's not just satisfied when it finds him; he finds it and intercedes here as well. They go to their father. They say, how are you home so quickly today? But tomorrow the girls say, How is Moshe identified here? Ish Mitzri. The Medrash notes that Moshe and Noach move in opposite directions. Moshe is first, Noach is first called an Ish, a Tzadik. And how does he end his life? Ish Adama, a man of the earth because he planted the vineyard and got drunk and so on. Moshe begins life as Ish Mitzri. And how does he end? A tzadik. He ends being called a, a Tzadik. But here Moshe is called Ish Mitzri. So they tell their father, an Egyptian helped us. The Not only did he save us from these uh, shepherds, but he helped us water our flock. Where is he? Well, I don't say he did all that. What kind of? How did I raise you? You don't reciprocate. You didn't welcome him home. Where's your? Where's your hospitality? Where are you to take care of him? Rashi says, Yisrael recognized, based on the way the story was communicated to him, this is a special man. He must descend from that great Yaakov. How did he know it? Shamayim olam l'kraso. Because when he went to water, what is that reminiscent of? Rivka. The same miracle. The water rose to make it easier in the well to be able to feed the flock. Sforno points out, what was Yisrael telling his daughters? Says the Sforno, Lama zazavtem, me'achashu orech v'ish chesed, ha'yalachem ligmol imo chesed achnasas orchem. If he showed kindness to you, the least you could do is show kindness, reciprocate back to 
back to him. The Kliyakar on the bottom of this page points out, why did Moshe have to flee? What caused Moshe to flee Egypt and live 60 years at least in Midian? Says the Kliyakar, What is the downfall? The Jewish people remained in Egypt 60 more years of their suffering while Moshe was on this hiatus in Midian. And why did Moshe have to run? Why did they suffer the 60 extra years? All because of gossip. Lashon Hara. Somebody told somebody who told somebody that Moshe had hit an Egyptian and that got back to Paro and that's why he had to flee. So says the Kliyakar, you see, it's the age-old, old, horrible shortcoming of gossip of Lashon Hara which led to the suffering here, and it continues to lead to Jewish suffering throughout the ages. The destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, and so on and so forth, is all the result of, is all the result of Lashon Hara. I'd wanted to get to also the difference between Naka, Tzaka, and all those things. We're out of time. I leave it to you to address and think about and examine why does it describe it. And also I call your attention to the way this section ends. Vayiskor Elokim. Where do you recognize those two words from? Vayizkor Elokim. It's the way that Yizkor begins. Yizkor that we say on the on Shalash Regalim and Yom Kippur. How does Yizkor begin in the Machzor and the Siddur? Yizkor Elokim. You know, it was um, Lord Emmanuel Jacobovitz, a previous uh, chief rabbi of uh, Great Britain, who pointed out that when we say Yizkor, Yizkor doesn't refer to us. Yizkor Elokim. We're drawing on God's memory. Are we worried about God having a failing memory? What do you mean we're invoking may God remember? And where does he get it from? One of the examples he brings is Vayizkor Elokimah's Brisos Avins of Yaakov. Our Pasuk. That the people cry out and God remembers. Had God forgotten that he needed to remember? What does it mean to invoke God's memory? We'll have to leave it for another time. Have a great week.